Wealth is good inherently. Um, it is not a tool that can be used for good or for evil. It is inherently a good thing that some people sometimes do use for evil. And here's what I mean by that. Welcome to Bullish, where we talk about the journey and process to build ourselves and companies into multi-billion dollar people and brands. Currently, my business and investment funds have done tens of millions in revenue. And this is the documentation of the journey to scale to the billion dollar realm. All while we give back and do good in the world. My name is Bridger Pennington and welcome to Bullish. Joe Brown. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on, brother. Hey, thanks for having me. So give the audience real quick a, let's just say a 30 second to 45 second, just overview boilerplate of you, Heresy Financial, what you guys do online and with your companies and all the stuff you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my wife and I got married. We were broke. I had a ton of debt. I was making less than minimum wage. And uh, so I was like, I got to do something to get myself out of this hole. So I started reading some of the basic personal money management books and kind of was like, man, I really like, you know, I really enjoy this stuff. I had a friend who, uh, uh, he was a stockbroker. And so he's like, hey man, if you really like this stuff, um, I could get you a job as like a, you know, in the broker training program. So I jumped at that chance. And uh, the more I kind of dived, dove into the belly of the beast, the more I liked what I was learning. So um, did a bunch of different, uh, different jobs, uh, you know, trying to get my experience, you know, from a bunch of different angles, really driven out of like a curiosity for, I wanted to understand how things work from behind the scenes. Um, it got to a point where I realized, uh, you know, kind of uh, drinking the Kool-Aid wasn't going to get me, you know, all of the answers that I needed. I started running into walls here and there. So, um, started looking into, you know, just like reading books about how the economy works. I uh, got introduced to, you know, people like Ray Dalio and Peter Schiff and other people like that. And, um, got to a point where I was like, you know what, it seems like, you know, I, I can't really continue to keep on selling what I'm selling right now, now that I know, uh, you know, the way this all works. So I'd rather teach people how, how this all works so that they can do the right things for themselves instead of just selling them subpar products. And so, um, that was in, uh, 2019 when, uh, when I quit my job and I started heresy financial, uh, with the goal of just teaching people how money works. And so since then I've been making as much content as I can, uh, everywhere that I can to try and teach people how money works and how the economy works. And in light of that, what you can do to make more money and protect the money that you have. Yeah, it's awesome. So Heresy, if you guys go look him up, has an awesome YouTube channel, a lot of cool stuff. I'm excited to dive into it today and good to have you on, Joe. We met actually, we were both speaking at some summit thing for this, this investor group, which is pretty fun and fun to chat. Yeah. So I want to dive in with, with Joe right here. So let's actually talk, let's talk right now. We're in the, we're filming this in the middle of 2023. We've got interesting economic times to say the least. Uh, what things, I'll let you take the rope with it first. What things are you looking at as the most important I don't know, things that you're keeping your eye on as you're trying to, all of us trying to predict the future, see where the, if we're going to have a soft landing, hard landing. What are a few yeah. things that you're really keeping your eye on in regards to macroeconomics? Yeah, there's a couple the factors that I think are kind of the driving factors here. We've got um, uh, monetary policy and fiscal policy. Um, for anybody who's not aware, monetary policy refers to anything that the central bank does to try and steer the economy. And fiscal policy refers to uh, the government taxing and spending. Um, and so those two things historically have been a lot more separated. And um, what we've seen happen time and time again in many different countries is uh, as the same pattern of events unfolds that we're seeing happen right now, you start to get closer and closer coordination between that monetary and that fiscal policy. 
Um, so one example of this uh, is uh, is the money supply. So we had a uh, you, we had a big spike in the money supply in early 2020 when they did all the money printing to pay for the stimulus packages and and everything like that. Um, monetary policy has a big lag. So this was March of 2020 when the money supply spiked. It's the chart that you can, if you want to look at this, is called M2 money supply. And you can see in March of 2020 is when it started to spike and it just kept on going from there. If you look at the same time frame, the inflation chart, first inflation dropped. It went you know negative for a very small amount of time. Um, it was over a year until the inflation rate got back to the average of two and a half percent. So inflation was two and a half, two and a half, two and a half, two and a half. And then the money printing started, inflation dropped, went negative. A year later, it finally reached the average. And then for the next six months or so, inflation spiked and got to the record or the peak in this, uh, in this cycle. Um, but at that time, the money supply was no longer increasing at the same pace. And so there's a lag when the money printing starts. The reason why that doesn't immediately cause inflation is because that money hasn't worked its way into goods and services yet. So the money gets printed, but where does that money go? Well, it goes to purchase bonds, government bonds. Well, who is holding those bonds? Banks. So those banks sell those bonds to the Fed and now those banks have the cash. Well, what do those banks do with that cash? They turn right around and lend it to the United States government again. So the government borrows that money and then they spend that money. So it took them a little bit of time to start spending it. So you saw their checking account is called the Treasury General Account spiked and it took them a while to start spending it. As they spend it, where does that money go? It goes into somebody's bank account, whether that's a bank account of a, a, a nonprofit organization or a military contractor or a politician or social security or whoever's bank account goes into somebody's bank account. At that point, it can finally start to be used for like buying stuff. And so it'll buy, you know, goods and services and consumables and cars and everything like that. Um, and then that's when the auction starts to happen. So you imagine like on eBay, when a bunch of people are bidding on the same thing, it drives the price up. That's what happens once that new money gets into the economy, everybody goes out and starts to buy stuff and resell stuff and buy stuff. And that money goes from one big account to another, to another, to another. And that's when the prices start to uh, start to accelerate higher. It was a year and a half from the money printing to then. Um, so then the question is, well, uh, what's happening now? Well, at the very end of uh, 20, or I'm sorry, the beginning of 2022, end of 2021, um, that's when the money printing stopped. Um, we had a little bit of a spike after that, kind of a lagging effect. So technically April of 2022 was the peak in the money supply. Since then, the money supply has been declining at the fastest pace since the Great Depression. Most people don't know this. We're not money printing anymore. The money supply is actually shrinking. Yes, we've got a long way to go, but the total amount of money is actually coming down. So the question is, what's gonna happen to inflation? And the answer is there's a lag about a year and a half. And if an increase in the money supply causes inflation, then a decrease has a deflationary effect. So that's one piece. The next piece is fiscal policy, which is the taxing and the spending. That might have an opposite effect because of how much. So let's start. Let's pause there for a second. But yeah, let's pause there, and I want to let. Let's go. Let's ask. Yeah, I love it. So you know, you look at this. This is very interesting economic time, right? Of how much government involvement has been in place the last four years on both fiscal and monetary policy. And I'm happy we're diving into this. And so just so I'm clear, you're you're saying the amount of there's M2 has come down drastically in the last few months. 
that will, in your predictions, it's going to be very deflationary over the next 18 months. Now, other things that drive deflation as well are technology. Technology is one of the most deflationary things in the entire economy, which we are seeing an explosion of technology right now. And pretty much they call it the convergence of technology. So you have, it's not just that one technology is blowing up. We have like 10 technologies converging right now. We have uh, 5G, we have chip manufacturing, we have robotics, we have AI, we have blockchain. Uh, they're all converging together. And what's producing is these really cool startups that are coming out, which again, are very deflationary. The, the example I love to give just for listeners that maybe don't get this is uh, if you had a VR headset that was really good, let's say it's amazing. And you can, you can put them on and you walk, you go to Disneyland and you like feel like you're in Disneyland. It's awesome. It's like this incredible Disneyland experience. And let's say it costs you maybe 300 bucks to buy that VR headset. Well, guess what? Maybe that replaces a little bit to go to Disneyland. You don't feel like you need to go to Disneyland anymore. So you don't need to spend an airline ticket and get a hotel and pay for the food and all these things and buy an expensive ticket and stuff. You can just put on a VR headset. That's deflationary for the economy. If you have self-driving trucks, you don't have, you, they can run 24 seven. You don't have to pay a driver. So hence you can ship things for cheaper costs. That's deflationary mm -hmm. to an economy just so people are, understand this. So, so you think we're going to have, and I, it's funny, you listen to guys like, um, you know, Kathy Wood that go out and other mm -hmm. groups that are saying deflation is actually the biggest threat to the dollar over the next decade, which is going to be interesting to see where technology goes. But what's your take on, do you think we're going to overcorrect with deflation uh, over the next 12 to 18 months? Yes. Okay. So a couple of things. Um, number one, uh, I do I have a have an opinion that I think is at odds with the consensus that we're going to see deflation. Um, but contrary to those who agree with me about seeing deflation soon, I don't actually think it's a threat. Um, it's a threat to debt, not a threat directly to the dollar. And I'll explain why. Uh, for all of human history, we've seen deflation. That is the natural course of history, and it and it and it and it happens no matter what over the long term. We get blips of inflation along the deflation route. But what is deflation really? Um, it's getting more for less. So when we discovered fire, we didn't have to forage all day because we could cook our food and get more nutrients out of it. We could heat our homes and stay warm. And that allowed us to spend more time doing more productive things. Like maybe we can hunt an animal now and we get the skin and we get more nutrient dense food. And then when we discovered that we could put that food uh, in a cage and we didn't have to hunt and gather for it anymore, we invented yeah. farming. We get more for less human effort. Um, same thing like when we discovered coal, we didn't have to burn forests down anymore. Biofuel, we could use coal, much more energy dense. We invented the steam engine. We get a lot more output for the same or less human input. Um, and so that's the overall course of human history. And that's how you get more wealth over history. Um, even though we don't have, you know, technically more resources, we have the same earth we always have. And so, um, anything that we see that is going to bring deflation is going to be a net good to humanity and to progress and to wealth and to equality and to everybody having better lives. Um, you look at a homeless person today in the United States, um, and they live like a king compared to even actual Kings from 300, 400 years ago. I mean, I drive by homeless people who are morbidly obese every single day. And so mm -hmm. it's like, that's why, you know, people want to come to America is because even the poor people are, are fat here and they're not hungry and starving. And so we have abundance and because we have the ability to get a lot more for a lot less. Um, so things like artificial intelligence, 
That's another step along the same path we've been on throughout all of human history. And it may be a bigger step, um, maybe not, but it's a step in the right direction. So um, what that means for the dollar is that the dollar gets more valuable. Um, as long as, the, you know, assuming ceteris paribus, all else being equal, is assuming they don't print any more of it, um, it yeah. means that your dollars go farther. You get more mm -hmm. for less. Um, now, who, who does that hurt? That hurts the lenders. Um, mm -hmm. uh, when, uh, I'm sorry, it hurts the borrowers because when you have to pay back debt, um, during deflation, you're, it's harder to get your hands on dollars cause they're worth more instead of, um, uh, you know, you used to be able to get, uh, you know, 10 apples, uh, for a dollar. Now you can only get one apple for a dollar. That means if you're trying to sell apples to get, uh, to get dollars during deflation, it's the opposite. You have to sell more apples to get the same number of dollars. So yeah. it's, it's hard for borrowers. Um, who's the biggest borrower, United States government, financial institutions, uh, corporations and American households. We're all drunk on debt. And so anything that's bad for borrowers Wait. is going to be very painful for most Americans. Hey, hey, what's going on people? Hope you're enjoying the show. This is Bridger Payne's in here. So if you've liked the show so far, if you're more of a visual learner, we actually post almost all of these to YouTube. So if you go look me up, Bridger Pennington on YouTube, we're there. We actually have a ton of different content on funds and different business structure and strategy stuff that we kind of don't touch on on the podcast, but are more visual based stuff. So if you're a visual learner, go to YouTube and go check me out, Bridger Pennington on YouTube. With that, we'll get back to the show. Thanks guys. Which is interesting because, you know, the, the, then the converse of that is inflation destroys debt, right? So inflation, mm -hmm. if you are the biggest baller, like people always, you know, the feds idiots, they don't know what they're doing. Like, well, I don't know if they're idiots, but, uh, you know, if you had a huge $30 trillion of debt, inflation is a decent way out of that debt to, if it, if it can be tapered, if it can be in a good sense. So on this whole conversation, we're talking inflation, deflation. And I want to hear, actually, maybe you can take us whatever direction you want to go, whether it's to monetary policy or on this question. Do you see the Fed right now heading towards a beautiful deleveraging? Do you see them actually doing this deleveraging in a soft landing or do you see it having happening in a hard landing over the next 12 to 18 months? Yeah. Yeah, I get that uh, uh, that Ray Dalio reference there. So uh, another yeah. fan, I guess. Um, yeah, so uh, right now, um, the, the, the number one thing that uh, we always have to talk about about these things with nuance. It's, you know, all else being equal, but we know in reality, everything else is not actually equal. When you push on one lever, it, you know, it bumps another. And so there's always gonna be uh, feedback mechanisms that change things as one of the other inputs changes. Right now, the biggest wild card is the interest uh, snake eating itself by the tail. So when, uh, when you look at the 70s, they ratcheted up interest rates uh, to try and stop uh, the inflation, right? Well, what was the debt to GDP ratio at that time? It was 30%. So if you've got $100,000 worth of income and you've got $30,000 of debt, that's painful. And if your uh, interest rate goes up on that, that's painful, but it's not a death blow. Um, if you make $100,000 a year and you have $120,000 of debt, and you're paying interest only on that debt right now, and then that interest portion 5Xs, now you're in deep trouble. So that's the situation the government is in right now, 120% debt to GDP ratio, and uh, the uh, interest is going from historical rock bottom lows, close to 0%, right now it's at 5%. So every dollar of debt they have to roll over, and they are rolling it over because they have deficits, um, that means that they're 
paying a higher debt service cost, five times higher in some when, cases. When do those start hitting? Do you know when those will start? Like they have to refinance this debt? I, I heard it was middle of 2024. Do you know the actual schedule when they're gonna have to start doing this? It's constant. So uh, it's not it's not a linear uh, rollover uh, or refinancing. It's, you know, it, it's a constant old debt is maturing and they have to borrow new debt to pay off the old debt. And yeah. right now, the interest portion is just about equal with uh, defense spending. Um, which is a huge number. And it was like half yeah, of that like a year ago. Yeah. Um, and over the next, I think it's the next year and a half, it's about half the national debt that'll that'll roll over, get refinanced. Um, and wow. so not all of that is at 0% right now. Some of that is, you know, 1%, 2%, you know, maybe it's older, you know, 10 years from 10 years ago or 20 years ago, but a good amount of it is lower interest rate than, you know, where we're at right now, which is, you know, like 5%. So uh, the, the, that's the biggest issue right now when you talk about a deleveraging is that uh, you want to inflate, you know, as a borrower, as the United States government, you want to inf have inflation to inflate your debt away. So you print a bunch of money, dump it into the system to drive prices higher to get more taxes. But when that inflation hits, then the interest cost on your debt spikes. And it, it's, it's severe only when your debt pile is already big. So because their yeah. debt pile is already big, any amount that they try to inflate their debt away makes the interest uh, compensate for it and then some. So it is almost, it's, it's, a, it's an issue that will have to be monetized by the Fed at some point. So I'm curious your thoughts on how do banks survive the next 12 months? They and <laughs> I mean, you have an inverted yield curve right now for the last yeah. six or seven months that essentially an inverted yield curve means the banking model does not work. The banking model is based upon borrowing essentially short from de depositors and lend lending long and playing that spread. When you have an inverted yield curve, it, there's no, there's like, you don't run a bank. Like it doesn't work on a macro scale. Additionally, banks have huge amounts of debt service that are, um, that I, whether borrowers are, hopefully they can pay them back. But I'm guessing there's a lot of people out there that don't have war chests that are going to not be able to make these payments. And they're going to have to then foreclose on these massive commercial real estate properties. I mean, you look at San Francisco, that's 50, 60% occupied. Yeah. I'm guessing that's a, a similar thing around in other cities around the country. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. And just, I'm just an armchair economic or econ economist, but I'm looking at this, like, I don't, I mean, I feel like if I was a, bank presidents right now have got to be very stressed out. Additionally, they have all this bond, all these bonds that they bought back a couple of years ago that they are now having to market to market. And like Silicon Valley bank, they had dropped 30, 40, 50% in some cases. So yeah. what is your thought on the banking sector? I mean, we've already seen a, a banking crisis here in, you know, Q, Q1, Q2 of 2023. Do you think we're going to have more pain in the banking sector? And where do you see that going? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's there's definitely going to be pain that pops up from commercial real estate right now. Um, ear to the ground information says that uh, anybody who's in trouble right now is currently still in denial, and they're saying no, we're gonna we're gonna yeah. keep on holding on to this thing. Um, there will certainly be some pain that hits when uh, when they can no longer uh, handle it. So there will be isolate, in my opinion, isolated incidences of uh, small local banks. Um, going under as a result of overexposure to commercial real estate. Um, 
because uh, you either have uh, the borrower go bust or the bank go bust in this situation. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, if you're overexposed, then the borrower has the has the leverage. Um, I don't think it's going to be a like a systemic like a domino effect um, where one thing leads to another because it's it's uh, these are highly concentrated. It's not everybody overexposed. Um, on top of that, it's because most of the trouble right now is in like office space. It's not in things like um, you know, residential, it's not in things like warehouse space. It's not in things like, um, it, it's, you know, it's like the strip malls and the office space, those kind of commercial real estate that are getting hit hard right now. So it's concentrated. It's not widespread. Um, that being said, uh, the BTFP is pretty much permanent now. The, 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 that's the new facility the Fed set up the bank term funding program. So if a bank is in trouble before this, a couple months ago, they'd have to sell all their debt at, uh, you know, a way lower price than what they bought it at, take the loss, pay back what they could, and they're un- they go under. They can mm-hmm. use this new BTFP to temporarily sell it to the Fed. You know, it's it's big, you know, corporate, you know, pawn shop, basically. They temporarily mm-hmm. sell it to the Fed with the promise of buying it back later, but they get to sell it at that full price, what they bought it at. So they don't have to take a loss oh. on it. Um, wow. So that's what the Fed set up for banks. Um, so that banks don't have this, you know, domino effect of, you know, bank runs toppling over banks. That's basically permanent now. So I don't see a domino effect of banks for the moment. Wow. And sh- well, hold on, just to clarify, I, yeah. uh, thanks for shedding light on this. Are they selling back their bond assets to the Fed or any assets they can sell to the Fed? Um, it's the, it's, it's treasuries basically. So there's a, there treasuries, are qualifications okay. on what assets, um, but it's, it's going to be, it's mostly treasuries. Yeah. So and they, that's ba- so basically what banks saying, have right now. The Fed is saying, we'll buy back your treasuries at whatever cost you bought them at. Mm-hmm. And we'll just make sure you're made whole on them. Yeah. So they, they, they buy, you know, this asset, you can think of it like a stock. It's really just a bond. It's money loaned to the government. So they buy it at a hundred dollars. Right now it's worth $70 right now. If they sold it on the open market, they'd only get 70 bucks and have to pay a hundred bucks back to their depositors. They can't do that or they go under. So they take that, they sell it to the fed through this program and they get the full hundred dollars. But their promise is within a year, they'll buy it back from the fed. Again, the, okay. the, the, the full price. Wow. Interesting. I didn't know that. Okay. Really cool. Thanks for shedding light on that. Um, yeah, that's so interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. so where do you think, you know, the, I love talking about this stuff, by the way, I just geek out on all this stuff. Yeah, you mentioned, actually, I cut you off before on monetary policy. Do you want to dive into that right now? Or do you want to talk? I was going to ask you about kind of future plans, whether it's a central bank digital currency, where you think the U S dollar is going governments. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, but I'll let you choose which, which route yeah. you want to go. Well, actually, it's what we were just talking about and what we were talking about earlier. They kind of converge to the same thing. So we, we're basically we've got two things ahead of us that I don't have a time frame for, uh, but under 20 years and longer than six months. Um, we've got two things. It's yield curve control and a nationalization of the banking system with a CBDC. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, the yield curve control happens because um, we have this situation where the government won't be able to afford its expenses. Their deficit is increasing because of mandatory spending, like Social Security, Medicare, um, discretionary spending, um, and the interest uh, expenses on the debt. Those are things that are political suicide to deal with, and so they'll just continue to spend until they have to borrow at 10%, 20%, whatever the percentage is they're borrowing at, 
eventually gets to a point where they can't afford it, where nobody's willing to lend that money to them, either because there's no more money left in the system or because they're perceived as too big of a credit risk. In that case, they turn to the Federal Reserve, the central bank, and they say, Fed, you print the money to lend to us. This is where it gets sticky because legally right now, the Federal Reserve has political independence. So the Fed can say no to that because the Fed has two mandates given to them by Congress, price stability and uh, uh, full employment. And so recently in the most recent press conference, somebody asked Jerome Powell, will you help refinance the government's debt? And Jerome Powell said, under no circumstances. And it looks like between the Fed and a couple other central banks around the world, central banks are realizing they messed up and they funded too much government spending and now the cat's out of the bag and they need to pull it back and not uh, fund this reckless activity by governments. And if that's the case and the Fed stands firm and says, no, we will not restart QE, the Federal Reserve Act will get rewritten. Congress will get together and they'll rewrite the Federal Reserve Act and they'll say you are no longer price stability and maximum employment, you are here to be a bank, a printer for expenses. And mm. monetary policy and fiscal policy will be merged. The debt will cease to be debt because it's not debt that gets repaid. We will just take control of the money printer and print what we need for our expenses. Mm. Um, another way that that happens is through soft yield curve control. If Jerome Powell or whoever it is at the Fed yields and says, okay, yes, we will monetize the debt, that happens through yield curve control. So we'll buy or lend as much money as possible as, as needed to the United States government at, you know, five, five bips or, you know, 1% or whatever is needed so that they don't go bankrupt. We just won't do that for anybody else. So the government gets the stimulus, but everybody else has the really high rates. Um, so that's another possibility. Uh, before I go on to nationalization and CBDC, I'll stop there. Well, well, yeah, I, uh, no, this is, this is a, this is awesome. Cause it's, it's funny to think through you know, my dad and some of you guys know my dad runs a formerly did ran a, he ran a $48 billion family of real estate funds. And now since retired, but he talks about this all the time is he, he goes, the U S dollar is a Ponzi scheme mm -hmm. and we're all, we're all <laughs> just a part of it. And it's fine. Actually it's a Ponzi schemes. You know, it, we know it won't run forever. This, the, what we're doing won't run forever. But he goes, I don't know if it'll end in one year or 20 years or a hundred years. It could keep running for a long, I know Ray Dalio's got his book and everything. He talks about the, the cycles and everything, but you know, and, and, uh, and then you think about this deleveraging and then you look at other, other countries though, but the, the question always comes back to compared to what? Well, we're bad, but compared to what? All these other countries are even worse off than we are. They've been doing this that at even a worse level than the United States has. Not every, I mean, well, maybe I haven't looked at every country, but I would assume most, almost there was a couple that haven't, but almost every country, major nation on earth has done this. And so the, then the question comes back to, well, what do they do? Like, how does, how do you get out of this situation? When the Ponzi scheme unravels, what does it unravel to? And I think you just pointed out a very good probability. Yeah. Maybe it would, that's actually a great you know option. Maybe they centralize, they rewrite that act and they centralize it into one essentially bank that funds the government. That would be one way to get out of that. And then if anybody wants to come after the United States, they say, well, you and what army, you know, we have 14 aircraft carriers and this whole, you know, we have the military machine that says, yeah, you know, if you want your debt, come and get it. We're going to change things. And then maybe we're going to reset our currency, which you're about to get into, I think with the, the CBDC. Um, I, I, it's, it's not a terrible plan. Actually, if you're looking at a way to get out of the situation, you know, what are your options? I think this is actually a very viable option. And I, I don't, and again, I don't make the decisions. I don't think Joe makes the decisions. We're just kind of saying, 
I always try to just say, well, what do I, if there's a wave coming, I'm just going to go with the wave. I'm, you can, we can Mm -hmm. argue till our faces turn blue if it's right or wrong or the dangers, but I don't, I'm not the one making the decisions. I'm the one that I need to just front run and get in front of what's going to happen. That's at least how I approach things um, on a macro scale. So Joe, keep, keep going on this. I want to hear what that then turns into. Yeah. Yeah. I put, I a hundred percent agree with you that none of what I've said is, uh, uh, prescriptive. I'm not saying I think this should happen or I want it to happen. I'm just saying based on what I see, this is probably what's going to happen. Um, now the, you mentioned like the, the, it's the clean, the dollar is the cleanest, uh, shirt in the uh, dirty laundry hamper, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. typically throughout history, Ray Daly talks about this as well, that when you get to the end of, uh, kind of a, a reigning power, one of the last things, there's a couple things that last toward the end, um, when everything else has kind of gone away, you've, it's still the financial center of the world. It's still the reserve currency of the world. Um, and those two things kind of last the longest. And so when you find yourself asking the question, well, um, you know, who, who they're going to give up the dollar, but for what? Like there's no other alternative. The defense for the dollar is no longer, Hey, well, America is the wealthiest country. It's the strongest country. It's the, you know, it's not, you know, economically, it's not the, you know, it's the, not the richest with the, you know, the best debt to GDP or any of that. So there's no fundamental backing to it other than, well, there's no good alternative. That's actually a signal of it being, you know, near the end. And that could be a multi-decades long, uh, you know, period of time, but it's still not a, not a sign of strength. It's a sign of uh, opportunity for newcomers. So, um, but yeah, so, the nationalization of uh, of the the banking system is kind of it, it kind of goes along with that because once you once you step in, I call it the regulatory uh, roller coaster to tyranny, and uh, you you start off by you know Greenspan trying to save the economy, blunt the the, the effects of the dot com mm-hmm. bubble with a subsidy, basically lowering rates. Well, that causes, you know, uh, that causes excess and risk taking in the housing market, uh, which causes a crash. So you have to rescue that with a bigger rescue. Uh, But then you're bailing people out that did all the bad things. And so you come in with new regulations to try and prevent that in the future. Those new regulations make it harder to make money in the old way. So that money spills out to other ways that uh, then causes excess risk that you have to subsidize once there's a crash regulate, subsidize, regulate, subsidize, regulate. And you get to this point where now nothing can happen that is not explicitly prescribed by the government. Um, Whether implicitly or explicitly, you have an eventual nationalization of the entire banking system. And um, yield curve control is part of that. The other part of that is a central bank digital currency because we're getting to a point now where banks are still collapsing. Bankers are still making a bunch of money. People are going to start getting really upset with that again, especially if they end up losing money. So you get you get this uh, un uh, dissatisfaction with uh, with this um, the socialized losses and the privatized gains. So this has happened many times. Governments just nationalize the banks. Um, you end up with six big banks. And they're all controlled directly by the government, probably under the Fed. And the easiest way to do that is a central bank digital currency. Because at the end of the day, today, we we have ledger money. That's what money is. Every bank yeah. has its own ledger. It's a ledger is just a list, list of account numbers. We're already doing it. We're already kind of doing it. We're already doing it. That's what ledger money is. So what would be easier? We have 2,000 different ledgers held at each bank. Or unify it all under one ledger at the central bank. 
obviously that would be easier. They'd be able to implement monetary policy easier, uh, taxes easier, rationing on you know X, Y, and Z when there's a shortage because people are buying too much of it easier. So obviously you can you can spill over into tyranny really easily. But um, if a, if there's enough of a crisis, people are willing to accept any handcuff as long as it comes with a handout. <laughs> uh, well said. You know, it's funny is uh, whoever, the person that keeps winning through this whole banking crisis is JP Morgan. I mean, they have won <laughs> consistently. I mean, First Republic Bank, they bought, I think, for seven cents on the dollar. I did the math on their whole asset purchase. I mean, it's just wild. There was no yeah. other bidders that wanted to come at eight or nine or 10 cents on the dollar. And it makes you think that, you know, these big, let's call them big four banks are in cahoots with the Fed on this whole consolidation of the banking industry that's going on right now. And potentially for exactly what you're saying, I think it's, I think it's spot on. Um, something else that's, I think, you know, fascinating about this space right now is just, well, first off, we're already there, right? We already are using, I love what you said. We're already on a ledger system. We, all of our money is digital anyways. If they turned off the electricity, your money's kind of gone. My money's kind of gone. If just the electricity turns off, right? That's how dependent we are on this. It's not that far of a leap to hit to a central bank digital currency. The Fed now protocol is supposed to be coming out this month, actually. And funny enough, I'll tell you a quick story. So we have a lady in my group. Um, she's worked at a bunch of big and small banks. And she was telling us, she says, we've been prepping for Fed now for, I don't know, six or seven months at the time. Mm -hmm. She goes, and she works at one of the big banks. I won't say the name, but one of the big banks, one of the big four. And she said, we've been prepping, we're ready to go. And she said, uh, it's, her, her analysis was the first uh, iteration will be $500,000 for individuals that you can send uh, directly, you know, wire essentially just instantly. Corporations will do 5 million instantly, which is pretty cool. Now this is, yeah. and by the way, if you guys don't know what we're talking about, Fed now, go look it up. It's on the Federal Reserve website. They announced it in March. It is coming out July, literally this month that we're filming this, 2023. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't seen it out yet though. I think it's soon, but this was the announcement. This is the launch date was July, 2023. Um, the interesting part about this though, she said, I work with some smaller banks. None of the regional banks are inside. Don't, they don't have any clue about what's going on with Fed now. They've been left mm. in the dark. They've only really? been working with Fed now for with the big four banks. And the, mm -hmm. she goes, the regional banks are asking, hey, when can we get the info? We want us to make sure our team's ready. We want to train our people to make sure we're ready to go. And they've just been silent. And she goes, I work at one of the big four banks and we've got all the info. We've got everything we need. We're setting it up right now. And my friends who work at regional banks have no clue. They're all left in the dark. Now this, she was telling me this in March of 2023, okay. which is right before the, you know, banking crisis, which happened, which I just thought was, I don't know, hmm. this is pretty interesting. I thought, um, on this potential consolidation of the banking industry that's, that's happening. Hey, hey guys, hope you're enjoying the show. If you're someone that wants to learn more about alternative investing, private equity, hedge funds, venture capital, we just created a brand new group on discord that all of our wall street rebels around the world are joining. It's called the wall street rebel insider community. Go check it out down below. It's an amazing group. I go live in there. We do calls. I do all sorts of AI bots and terminal things and all sorts of cool stuff. So go check it out and get back to the show. Thanks guys. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it hasn't just started recently there, you know, when you track even just like the number of banks over the last 20 years, it's it's a fraction of how many banks we used to have. And that's a result of this regulation, subsidy, regulation, subsidy, or bailout, regulation, bailout. Um, it squeezes and makes it very hard to operate as a business in these environments. Um, and and that's without any malevolence. And so, I mean, I always, I always say this, that um, 
when when you're looking at the results of something and you're wondering is this incompetence or is it malevolence um in many in in most circumstances it doesn't matter the results are exactly the same and many times incompetence does have the exact same results as malevolence um and uh even if even if it's born out of good intentions like hey we want to make sure that depositors are not at risk of banks you know taking excess risk with their money and uh and and losing it and we want to save small depositors the downstream effects of that could be you just made the entire banking system so fragile that now everybody is at risk because you didn't have the leave the proper incentives in the system for people to have skin in the game. And so mm, that's the same result as malevolence. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Do you what do you think about JP Morgan running or uh, excuse me, Jamie Dimon running for president? I, I don't think he will. Um, uh, he's in the past, he's been very seemingly opposed to it. I know some people want, want him to, I, I just don't see, I could be wrong about this. Um, when you have some of the big wall street guys, uh, you know, backing him, um, it seems like it politically right now, almost everybody on the right looks at Jamie Dimon as an enemy looks at him as somebody working for the other side or the elites or the, you know, Illuminati or, you know, whoever is pulling the strings. Everybody on the left looks at him as a far right, big businessman, one of the enemies, like the person who's been exploiting America, getting rich off the poor guy. And so I don't, I personally, I don't really see a path to victory for him. So I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't expect him to actually take the, take the, take the plunge, but we'll see. I know. I, I agree with you. I think it's a, that's a spot on analysis, at least for this 2024 election. Maybe mm -hmm. you can change some things for the next one, but do you have a front runner, your a favorite for the 2024? Um, a favorite. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I could say I have a favorite. Um, when you, uh, when you take a look at, uh, when you take a look at the, I'll, I'll put it this way. I think that it's very possible this election year is the first year in maybe U.S. history where it's not two main candidates battling it out, mm. that there may be three or four that are equally positioned uh, to win. I think it's going to be potentially very, very interesting uh, election mm. year. Yeah, I uh, that's a great that's a great point. I, uh, you know, you've got some of these guys, you got RFK, you've got DeSantis, you got maybe Newsom coming in the race. Which are all all poll I in my opinion poll a pretty diverse group, and mm -hmm. I like like you're saying a pretty fraction group. I guess we'll see once nominations come out, but uh, it could be the case. And additionally, this year we have AI technology, deep fake technology. I, I'm very curious yeah. how that's gonna. We've had deep fakes in the past, but not to the mm -hmm. just the layman's use, like that you can just create a deep fake kind of whenever. And so yeah. I'm super curious of how this is going to play out, especially over the next 18 months. Uh, my, my opinion, man, I just, I think we need, so I just, I would love to see a, a ticket beyond Biden and Trump. If we do Biden and Trump again, I don't know. I don't know if I can, I can handle that. Uh, should be <laughs> pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I have, I have a prediction and it's July 11th, 2023. And so we'll see if this, we'll see if this just, you know, falls apart as, you know, uh, mm -hmm. one of the worst predictions ever. I have a feeling when you, when you look at the way that the media is, uh, is, is treating, uh, all the candidates right now, it seems to me that there's a good chance Biden actually steps down that the party gets mm -hmm. into step down 
for yeah. you know mental incompetence or or health reasons, something like that. Kamala gets a short period of time as president, gets to claim that, you know, first woman and first woman of color, person, uh, not person, but woman of color. And uh, then we have uh, Gavin Newsom pushed as the, uh, you know, the Democratic front runner, mm -hmm. um, Trump as the Republican front runner and RFK as the, uh, the I guess, independent, if you will. Um, yeah. And uh, and so I would I wouldn't be surprised to see some unprecedented crazy things like that happen. Yeah, that's a. We... It's funny. I, uh, I was going to make a, I don't gamble at all, but I was like, I'm going to make a bet on Hollywood. Like, or I go to Vegas and bet that Joe Biden leaves office before four years. This is right when he got elected. Yeah. The odds weren't that great. Like meaning <laughs> like the Vegas was, I, at the time, I can't remember. It was like, if I put like 10,000 in and he left office, I would only make like 15 back. And I was oh, like, that's really not what? great. <laughs> I was like, the Vegas is there's like good odds that he doesn't finish four years. And I was, I was like actually yeah. perplexed by this. And that's uh, funny. Anyways, and it actually plays in. I'll, I'll dive in this. I think you, you like this. Are you, uh, do you read the Bible at all? Yeah. You, yeah. are you Christian? So yeah. this is interesting. And, and again, this, we're getting into, you know, just anyways, kind of interesting stuff here. So you guys can, listeners can just follow along. But this is interesting. In the Apocrypha, okay. So Apocrypha yeah. was books that are left out of the Bible. But anyways, some mm -hmm. are, anyways, you can take them as you wish. But there's a, there's a story in the Apocrypha in the book of Ezra, okay? Mm -hmm. And it talks about an eagle nation. And this eagle nation, I'm, I'm going to give you the, the short version. You can go read it if you want. And there's a lot of interpretations around this story. So I'm just going to give you like the basic story. Then you can interpret it as you want. There's an eagle nation. It has three eagle heads. The eagle heads go to sleep, okay? They then appoint feathers to rise and fall, and, and they reign over the nation. And so there's a long, there's like long feathers. There's feathers that are short and long. And uh, they have this whole tier on the, on the right wing and the left wing. It goes through long feathers, short feathers. And it says the, I think it's the second feather is longer than all of them together. And there's long feathers, short feathers. So somebody put this together with U.S. presidents. And they put the, the, the long feather was like, it's like two and a half times longer than anybody else. And so they put that as um, Eisenhower who served 16 years. He served four terms. Hmm. So like, let's just see if it matches up with U.S. presidents. And so there's long feathers and short feathers, and they match up pretty much perfectly. So like hmm. Nixon, if you, if you served less than two full terms, you're a short feather. So you are a, um, so like Nixon's a short feather. John F. Kennedy's a short uh, feather. Uh, Obama with a long feather. Trump, so I heard, first heard about this in 2017. And I was like, huh, okay, let's just see. And Trump, Trump's feather was predicted to be a short feather. And so, which is less than two full terms. So anyways, Trump lost the election and, and he's a short feather. It's like, huh? Now what's interesting is, is this, the next feather after Trump is shorter than Trump. The next mm. feather after that is shorter than that. And the next feather after that is shorter than that. Interesting. So they all are shorter than the last. So if you played that out, it would be like, you know, Biden steps out and mm. then let's say Kamala takes over and then she steps out before another feather that's even shorter than her. And then it says mm. this two feathers would have come to power. They're like, they're like, they're coming to power at something, some of those lines. And what happens is the three eagle heads wake up and they eat the two feathers. And then hmm. it says those three eagle heads rule the world with power and horror, like the world's never seen for a short period of time. And then the, then actually the three eagle heads eat each other. They kill each other. And then they're killed by the stout. Anyways, we can go on and on and talk about what it goes on to. But I thought it was pretty interesting. So I first heard about this in 2017. And I was like, okay, this is from the apocalypse. Let's just see. And then Trump was short. 
And now I'm sitting here. I'm like, if Biden is a short, is shorter than Trump, I don't know. I'm going to go reread the whole thing and I'm buying like a bomb shelter and I'm going to buy a bunch of guns. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm like, if Biden ends his office early, which is very profitable, like it's not that crazy. And this feather thing is like lined up. You guys should go look it up and you can make your own interpretation, whatever you want to do. But I thought it was pretty interesting. And then it's, it's supposed to be shorter and shorter, which would lead up to maybe let's say the 2024 election. You'd have two essentially a president, vice president would come to power. And then they're essentially says they're eaten or killed. It sounds like by mm. the three Eagle heads, which I don't know what that represents. It could be three people. It could be organizations. It could yeah. be whatever, but uh, interesting. But anyways, regardless of that prophecy, I think the 2024 election is going to be wild for a number of different reasons, yeah. especially yeah. if it's a Trump Biden ticket. I mean, if it's Trump Biden ticket, that is going to be insane. If Trump wins, yeah the world is going to turn over and be so mad. If Biden wins and Trump doesn't win again, they're going to say the election's stolen and the right is going to be mad. Both sides, whoever wins, Trump or Biden, it will be, um, it will be on the fringe of a civil war, I think. And so I'm actually yeah. much in favor of, I, I like what you said, maybe some more, more, more candidates or, I don't know, diversification of candidates because I just, it's a path mm. towards a lot of pain, I think, if, uh, if you put those yeah. two candidates against each other again. But anyways. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, kind well, of that's wild. very interesting. I hadn't heard about that before. Well, take it with a grain of salt. You can go look it up. It's kind of just just fun yeah. theory. But uh, if Joe Biden steps out of office, give me a call. Though. I think I'm going to buy like one of those civil, you know, civilian <laughs> tanks or something, something to uh, <laughs> get my food storage in line because um, I don't know yeah. what's going to happen. But uh, all right, let me do a hot seat with you, Joe. Um, got some questions right. for you. I love to ask everybody. All right. Um, all right uh, 12 months from now, S&P 500 up or down? 12 months from now, S&P 500 uh, down. Okay, S&P 500 down. Uh, 12 months from now, median housing price, up or down? Up. Up, okay. Ooh, I'm curious why. Sorry, no, let me oh, ask right you all now these. Or, get back I, to okay, all right. <laughs> let me get back to these in a second. I'm going to ask you. I'm, I'm curious. I want to hear your response yeah. on these, but we'll. Uh, I'll just go hot seat for you. Okay, that was yeah. the S&P, the housing market. Uh, if you had to guess, central bank digital currency is launched. What, you know, date and time? We're gonna we're gonna timestamp this for future. Uh, July twenty twenty five. Okay, I like it. Um, most exciting industry or investment category you're looking at right now. You can add some more detail here if you want, but. Um. Exciting uranium. That that's a little bit of a longer explanation too, but uh, yeah, let's dive into that. You brought uranium, this up the other yeah. day on the other call. Talk us through yeah. uranium. You first brought this up, and I was like, "Are you predicting nuclear war? Are you predicting <laughs> no, <laughs> like, no. like why uranium?" <laughs> yeah. So walk us through uh, uranium. Okay, so uh, every time humanity has discovered a new form of energy, it has been one that is m much more energy dense than the last. So you have to burn a lot of wood to get the same energy that you get from coal. You have to use a lot of coal that you, to get the same energy that you can get from oil. You have to use a lot of oil to get the same energy that you can get from a pound of uranium. Um, and so that's been, that's the progress of human history. So solar and wind do not fit in that progression. Um, they're much, much, much less energy dense. Uh, in terms of how much energy does it cost to get you the energy uh, output. Um, uranium is insane in terms of uh, just like nuclear power plants, how much uh, energy you can uh, get over the long term. Uh, if you have 
uh, uranium rods, like the size of your, your iPhone, that'll produce more electricity than you will ever use in your entire life, your entire electricity usage. Um, and so insanely energy dense. Um, started in the 70s, um, we started to see basically propaganda against uh, nuclear energy. And the public believed it. Yes, we did have Three Mile Island, recently Fukushima, we had Chernobyl, but the cumulative deaths of all nuclear energy production, including those accidents combined, is under 300. That's about the same that die from uh, wind and solar every year from things like falling off roofs, installing, uh, installing things. So um, uh, people have been against it, though, because it's scary and they don't understand it. Within the last three years, public sentiment has shifted dramatically. One poll, Gallup poll, has had it three years ago in 2019 at 50% for nuclear, 50% against. And they have it now at like 65% for. Um, another polling uh, research company, Bisconti Research, uh, had it at like 43% for in 2019 and now 76% for in 2023. Um, on top of that, political sentiment is changing as well. The Biden administration is pouring billions of dollars into it. Um, Clinton actually outsourced all of our uranium purchasing to Russia years ago. So we don't have any domestic uranium production right now. That is changing very quickly. We are trying to change that and get our own uranium production up and running here. Um, and countries all around the world that don't care about what the, you know, uh, uh, a lot of the West is uh, caring about um, have been building nuclear power plants for a long time as well. So China's in the middle of, they've got like a hundred of them planned over the next couple of uh, decades. India's building a ton of them. Um, and the reality is if we want the energy that we actually need, nuclear is our only option that can produce enough of that energy of all the options that we know about nuclear is the only option and sentiment is changing people are liking it and we just don't have the production of uranium that we need for it um, and so because of that i am highly bullish on uranium because number one it's exciting like the more energy too cheap to meter abundant energy means everything it means carbon free gasoline it means free yeah. water distillation from the from the ocean there's so many things that that means um, so it's yeah. exciting but also from an investment perspective we're about to see demand skyrocket for it and the supply is very low very interesting uh how do you even is it just through commodity is that the best way to get exposure to uranium or is there what are some favorite uh ways to get exposure to the space the easiest way is an ETF. So URNM and URA, I believe. Let me just double check. URA, yeah. URA is the Global X Uranium ETF. So that tracks the spot price of uranium. And then URNM is the Sprott Uranium Miners ETF. So that invests in companies that mine uranium. So both of those are very easy to get your exposure. Gotcha. Really cool. I love it so much. Oh, that's awesome. Um, okay. I know we're going long here. A couple, just one or two last questions. Um, yeah. I love, actually, we'll just end on this. Actually, this is my favorite question to ask people before they go. Um, it's been phenomenal to be on with you, Joe. And actually, before I get to this last question, what's the best way? I know you have your awesome YouTube channel. Is that the best place to send people and give kind of a, a shout out for people if they want to come find you, hear more from you, hear all your, all your stuff, what you're looking at, all your investment stuff you're doing, where's the best place to find you? 
Yeah, number one place is gonna be on YouTube. I do about four videos every single week. If you're on Twitter, I'm tweeting every day on Twitter as well. And then if you want to really dive deep, I have uh, a membership program called Heresy Financial University. And it's like Netflix for financial education. So you, as a member, you get access to all of the courses that I have available right now. Every time I launch a new course, you automatically get access to that as well on things like portfolio allocation, advanced options, trading strategies, getting out of debt, retirement accounts, uh, fundamental analysis, investing in bear markets, and constantly more and more stuff is going on there as well. Cool, I love it. Um, okay, last question for you, Joe. If this was your last interview you ever got asked to do, and you can bring up whatever you want, religion, politics, family, financial stuff, but if this is the last interview you ever did and you wanted the world to remember something that you shared, I'm gonna give you the mic for about a minute, minute and a half. What would that one thing be that you wanna be remembered for on, let's call it your last interview you ever did? So with that, no prep, I didn't prep you on this question, so hopefully uh, yeah. <laughs> you can think no, of something quick, but uh, Joe, what, do you, what would you say? Wealth is good, inherently. Um, it is not a tool that can be used for good or for evil. It is inherently a good thing that some people sometimes do use for evil. And here's what I mean by that. Um, everybody talks about in business, you have to provide value, right? And, but nobody ever explains what that means. Here's exactly what it means. I have something that you want badly enough that you pay me for it. When that exchange happens voluntarily without coercion, no losses, we have to do it. No losses, we can't. That means that you just got something you wanted. And the only thing you had to give up was something you wanted less than what you got in return. When voluntary exchange happens like that, both parties profit. I got the money, which I wanted more than what I had. Maybe that was my time, my product, my service. You got my time or the product or the service, which you wanted more than the money. Because we both got something we wanted more and we gave up something we wanted less, we are both better off as a result. That is the definition of profit. It's why you buy one cheeseburger and not a hundred cheeseburgers. That cheeseburger is worth more than your $5 the cheeseburger isn't inherently worth more than your $5. So the exchange happens when two parties want what the other party has voluntarily. When that happens over and over and over again, the total stock of wealth increases. When I build a house, I spend a million dollars hiring laborers, buying supplies, getting a house built. At the end, they all have my million dollars and I have a house worth a million dollars. The net result of this voluntary exchange is now $2 million worth of wealth when before we only had $1 million, which was in my bank account. And so the result of voluntary exchange is that wealth increases. When wealth increases, that is a result of profit taking place. When profit takes place, it's because both parties are better off because they chose to do it and got something wanted more for what they wanted less. And as a result, the creation of wealth is inherently good. And the more humanity engages in the creation of wealth, the better off the world will be. Boom. I love it. Mic drop moment. Joe Brown, everybody. Thank you so much for coming on today. Go check out his, his show on YouTube. Go check out his courses, all that kind of stuff. Joe, thank you so much for coming on today. Go check it all out. You guys Thanks are amazing. We'll see you next episode.
Thank you. Hey, hey guys, hope you're enjoying the show. Now, as you know, we don't run advertisements on this channel. We just spread this by word of mouth. So if you can, please rate and review the show. If it's benefited your life anyway, please drop that down below. I actually love reading them. I love seeing what people say and share and stuff. So if you guys can, if you, this show has helped you in any way, shape or form, please rate and review and share this with a friend or two that may benefit their life. We do this just to help more people understand this game that we're playing.